So, Father, we thank you for another fall. It is true that uh, as we get older, the, the weeks just absolutely fly by. We are, though, entering one of the great seasons of the year for those of us who know you. We are grateful that we still have a nation that gives thanks to you. Not everybody does, but we do. And a lot of folks do. And that goes way, way back to when those uh, people launched out on that little tiny ship. They started from England, but they had to go to Holland. And then after so many delays and disappointments and heartaches, they finally made it here. And they had so many people sick. They had so many people die. And they almost died when they got this story isn't really told much anymore. It's not politically correct. It's not, uh, it, it, it violates too many people's sensitivities. But we're still telling it because they were Christian people who were following you. They believed that you had led them and you did. And you saved them and you sustained them by your providence. So they set aside a day and they were thankful. And that has gone down through our history. We don't know how much longer this will be a part of American culture, but it will always be a part of our homes. We say thank you for, for all that you have done for us. Some of us, Lord, are in uh, dire circumstances. Some of us are really up against it. Yet there are people... that are in much, much worse condition. There are people that would look at us and envy us, even with all we're dealing with and even all the pressures of our lives. They would look to us and they would trade places with us in a minute, and some of us are fighting off despair. It's always a matter of perspective. We always tend to compare ourselves to people who have more. But wisdom would dictate that we compare ourselves to people who have less. And when we do that, suddenly we have a perspective of thankfulness and of gratitude. We, we know the pressures are there for a reason. We know the difficulties are there for a reason. They, they weigh on us. They, they make us work our faith. They, they, they make us bring things to you. They make us get on our knees. Because without you, we're not going to make it. Without you, we're nothing. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And there are times when we get weary, and there are times we get, uh, we just get fatigued. We just get worn out. But tonight, Lord, even, and that's not all of us, but it's many of us. A lot of us are feeling the weight of, uh, of finances. And it's hit everybody in some way, shape, or form. We thank you uh, for the way that uh, you have been so gracious over the last few Sundays to provide for the needs of this uh, congregation in, in really an extraordinary way. And we thank you for folks, Lord, who have given and given sacrificially. We don't want to lose our spirit of thankfulness. We don't want to become 
people who are whiners. We don't want to become people who murmur. That's what Israel did in the wilderness. They had all these unbelievable blessings, and they just whined. And you said that you loathed that generation for 40 years. So help us, Lord, to keep perspective. Help us to remind ourselves of all that you have done, all that you have done in tangible ways, in relationships, in our families, with our physical situation, with the fact that we have food. With all these things, Lord, you have blessed us. Give us the right perspective. We battle, Lord, to keep our contentment and to keep our joy, especially in days like these. Daniel battled that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego battled it. Help us to win that battle every day. We come to you. We have nowhere else to go. Give us what we need. Encourage us. Let us know that you're with us, that you never, never will fail us or, for, or forsake us. Because some of us are getting close. For those guys, let them know that you're with them. Answer them quickly. They're in distress. We ask that you might do that. And we would boldly ask that because you have told us to come to your throne boldly and ask for a well-timed help. For those that are in desperation, give them that help at the right moment so that they will rejoice and tell their family and tell their children and their grandkids. And your name will be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When I was a little boy growing up in Bakersfield, California, oftentimes at Thanksgiving we would get in the car and we would drive 110 miles south to Los Angeles and we would often have Thanksgiving with my uh, paternal grandparents. And whenever we went to their home, I was always mesmerized. I was four, five, six. I was always mesmerized by a... Uh, by a, by a painting that they had on their wall. And this painting was a painting of Daniel in the lion's den. Uh, and there you see it. I can remember as a little boy, maybe three years old, maybe four years old, looking at that uh, painting that had been painted by Britton Rivera in 1892. Now, I didn't know he, wrote, he painted it. I didn't know the date. I just was mesmerized by the painting. And I used to look and look and look at that thing. And I'd look at those lions. I'm still kind of mesmerized by it. In fact, this week, uh, I thought about the painting because here we are in Daniel 6, one of the most famous stories in the Bible. People that aren't even Christians, people that didn't grow up in Christian homes, they know this story, Daniel in the lion's den. And I was reminded, I guess because we're coming up on Thanksgiving and here we are, Daniel 6, Daniel in the lion's den. I was reminded of those trips in the car from Bakersfield down to Los Angeles. And I was reminded of uh, that picture. And I got on the internet. You know, the internet's an amazing thing. And in about three minutes, uh, I just binged Daniel in the lion's den. You thought I was going to say I Googled. But I've switched from Google to Bing. I discovered Google in the original means Antichrist. That's kind of a joke, guys. And if that's on the CD, I'll probably get sued. But uh, 
no, I started using this Bing. I, it's just, it's different and I like it. And so I Googled, uh, I, I Googled, see? I binged, <laughs> just try Bing, you'll like it. I, I binged, um, Daniel Lyons did, thank you. Boy, I'm not doing well here. I'm 60, that's right. <laughs> so I, I binged Daniel and Lyons then, and then I hit images. And in about 10 seconds, that came up. Amanda, that bring back some memories. Isn't that something? I, I remember when um, we lived in the San Francisco Bay Area, and my daughter Rachel was probably two. We, uh, with some friends, went to the San Francisco Zoo. It's right there in Golden Gate Park. And as we were leaving for the day, We'd been there several hours, and she was getting, you know, needed a nap, and I needed, I needed to change my own diaper, and we were just heading out. But they have this thing at the San Francisco Zoo called the Lion House, and we passed it on our way out, and I was probably, I don't know, 60, 70 yards past the Lion's House, and all of a sudden, this, this sound literally reverberated through my entire body and the body of anyone that was near me. Because you see, it was feeding time at the lion's house. I want to tell you something. I don't know if you've ever heard African lions roar up close, but it is an astonishing uh, experience. Astonishing. And there's Daniel in the lion's den. One of the most famous stories in all the scripture. I want to begin at the end of the story. In Daniel chapter 6, and by the way, when, when you look at these lions, and, and you know the story, and you know how the because I'm going to the end of the story doesn't mean I'm ruining it for you, because you already know how the story turns out. You know, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. And he is known as the Lion of Judah. Now we are going to be introduced here to the Lion of Judah by Darius. Last week we saw the end of the Babylonian kingdom because the Medes and the Persians are coming to power, as was predicted in Daniel chapter 2. And last week, we talked about the great wall of, of Babylon and the great outer wall, which was 311 feet high, uh, 14 miles long in a square, which is what, 56 miles long, 56 square miles, 14 this way, 14 this way, 14 this way, 14 this way, 311 feet high, I believe it's 87 feet Wide And the reason that Babylon and the king felt so secure, Belshazzar, nobody's going to get in. But they got in that night, the night that the handwriting was on the wall. And Daniel told him, you're going to die this night. Uh, they didn't come in. The Medes and the Persians didn't come in over the wall. They came in under the wall. Because there's a Euphrates River that would run right down through the middle of Babylon. Fresh water. It would run from the north to the south. And through an amazing feat of engineering, the Medes and the Persians took their soldiers and they, uh, they dammed up and diverted the Euphrates River. And when they dammed it up, they were able to go in through the mud underneath the wall, which was never anticipated. And that night, 
It was over. Never Surrender by Lieutenant General Boykin. If you read his book, he was the first guy chosen for Delta Force. And when they dropped those guys out there in North Carolina in the middle of nowhere, and they're testing them, these were some of the, the choice guys in Special Forces. But they were starting this, this new deal. And they basically gave them a backpack and dropped them up in the uh, mountains of North Carolina in the middle of winter with, with, a, with a compass. And that was it. And they had to fend for themselves. If you've got a compass, you're going to be able to find true north. And if you've got true north, then you've got a reference point. See, if you've got a reference point and you know it's true, then you can calibrate yourself off of that reference point and get through life, whatever life throws at you. Now, in the Christian life, the sovereignty of God, the absolute control and dominion of God is true north for the Christian. And here is this next king coming through, and what's he going to say? He's going to talk about the great God of Daniel, who is a sovereign God. Verse 25 of Daniel 6. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples. This again, this is after Daniel's been delivered. Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nation, and men of every language who were living in all the land. He says, may your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Now, that's how we ought to be. All men should fear and tremble before him. He, he is an awful God. Not A-W-F-U-L. A-W-E. F-U-L. You stand in awe. Absolute awe of his greatness. Of his majesty. Uh, earlier we, we were in our prayer we were talking about Thanksgiving. When you look at what God's done in your life. When you look back over your life and you look at the hand of God, how he has led you and maneuvered you and navigate, navigated you, you, you can only be thankful. Even through the hard times, even through the difficult times. Why? Because he uses hard and difficult times and he turns them for our good. What other God can do that? There is no God that can do that. He is the only God. He is the true God. This is what Darius says. Look at 26. For he is the living God and enduring forever. 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 He is the living God. What does that mean? That means that he was active in the past. It means he's active today. And it means he's active in the future and for eternity. He's living. He's alive. He's not some idea. He's not some concept. Not some philosophical thing to chew around at Starbucks with, you know, other students. He's the living God who is active in our lives. And he often breaks us down so that we can see that he is the living God. When everything is good, when everything's perfect, isn't it good when everything's good in your life? Everything's kind of lining up the way you want it to be? That doesn't often happen. It's nice to get close. But it doesn't last long. Uh, something's going to fall apart. Something's going to go wrong. Something's going to disturb you. Something's going to blindside you. Now see, that's all by his design because it's in the times of desperation. It's in the times when our lives fall apart that we find out that we have no hope apart from him, the living God. 
Because he's living, he hears us when we call to him. That's what he does. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Now think about that for a minute. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Darius's kingdom is going to be destroyed. The Babylonian kingdom was destroyed. Alexander the Great's going to come along later. He's going to be destroyed. The Roman Empire is going to come. They're going to be destroyed. We see all these great, you know, movements, all these great nations, all this great stuff. These great leaders. I, uh... hmm. And some of them are very, very gifted. I've been reading a, a new biography on Winston Churchill that Mary found at Barnes & Noble on Monday, and she called me. And she said, have you read the one by Paul Johnson? I said, Paul Johnson hasn't written one. She said, oh, yes, he has. And by the next morning, I was reading it. It's pretty good. You know, if you know anything about Churchill, he was uh, he, a guy who lived quite a life. And uh, he, he was very unique uh, because of his family and his background and because of the political connections of his mother, as a young man, he was able to get to different wars, which he wanted to do because he wanted to make a name for himself and he wanted to get medals, but he also wanted to make money, so he was able to work a deal that no other soldier in England has ever made. He was not only a soldier, but he would write dispatches for English newspapers and be paid generously and handsomely. Somehow he pulled that off. And then after that, when the war was over and he'd go back home, he'd write a book on it. And after World War I and the events of World War I, which he was involved in, uh, he wrote a book on World War I. And one of his political adversaries said, um, after he read it, he said, well, Winston has written a book about himself called The Great Crisis. And, you know, that's kind of funny because it was about World War I, but somehow it was always about Winston Churchill. And he was there. He made sure he was there. A great leader, gifted leader. But you read a biography of Churchill and you see unbelievable mistakes. Unbelievable lack of wisdom. And that's true in every leader's life. We got these great kingdoms, we got these great leaders, we got all this, we got all these plans. Let me tell you something. His kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. And see, when you're when you're struggling with the day-to-day -day stuff and what's going on and all this stuff, you got to be focusing on the right kingdom. Don't you? See, sometimes we're too focused, Republican or Democrat. you got to be focused on the kingdom which endures, what? Forever. Forever. And then he says this, Darius says. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. That's what he did for Daniel. Who has also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. See, what's this guy, what's this king, what's this king saying and proclaiming to his entire dominion and to his entire nation? He is declaring the sovereignty and greatness of the one true God who is our God, who we know through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, Let's go back to the opening of the story. Because in Daniel chapter 6, what we see is the control and rule and sovereignty of the Lion of Judah. And I love this story, and this story gives me great hope. This is not just a story for kids, although it's a great story for kids. If you've got grandkids, 
Little kids, let me give you a tip for Christmas. Uh, go to a Bible bookstore and get them a Bible story book with illustrations. And read it to them. You know, they're three, they're four, they're five. They can't read. Well, then you read it to them. And get one with pictures. If they're three, if they're four, if they're five, they ought to know about Daniel. They ought to know about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They ought to know about Moses and the plagues and Pharaoh. They, and they, you know what? They ought to hear it from you. Not your wife, you. You're the father. You're the grandfather. Most of you guys can read. <laughs> or you're in the process. But you can read that even if you're not a great reader. Get a Bible storybook. I've got, uh, at my house, I, I have got, uh, is it seven volumes or 12 volumes that my folks bought when I was seven years old? And it's an illustrated, is actually put out by the Seventh-day Adventist uh, and a guy named Arthur Maxwell. It has the most incredible paintings and illustrations of biblical stories. Incredible. Now, I don't have grandkids. I've got three kids, none of them are married. I'm giving them another year and doing arranged marriages. <laughs> but when I get grandkids, you know why I've got those still there? I've still got them. You know what I'm gonna do when I get those grandkids? I'm pulling down those, those books. And I'm gonna read them the stories. And, and, you'll, and they'll just, they'll look at those pictures and illustrations just like I did when I, when I was that age. Our great God is, uh, is to be known. And the earlier they know, the better. What you've got in Daniel 6 is, it's about lions, but I want to talk about the Lion of Judah, the sovereign God. And as the story breaks forth, let me break it down for you. In, in the opening verses, in verses 1 through 2, the Lion of Judah rules over government bureaucracy. Somehow that just kind of helps me. I don't know why, but it does. Verses 1 and 2, it seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom. What, what does that mean? Where were the satraps? They're like princes. That they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. So what do you got here? You got a bureaucracy, 120 of them. And over them, oh, by the way, and they're all in charge of some guys under them. You know how this thing works. 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom. And over them, three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one that these three satraps might be accountable to them and that the king might not suffer loss, okay? So this is how things have been set up. Daniel has been involved in uh, Babylonian affairs his entire life. Right now, he's probably in his early 80s. The reason we're saying that is, uh, in the previous chapter, you had the handwriting on the wall with Belshazzar. Daniel was 80, 81, 82. We know from history that Darius only reigned about two years. So this is only a couple of years. It's within two years of what happened in the previous chapter. But Daniel's been involved politically his entire life since he was 16, 17 years old. And now he's in his 80s. Now, verse 3. Note that the Lion of Judah rules over jealousy. Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and satraps because he possessed an extraordinary spirit and the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. Well, now we got a problem. Because you got power-hungry bureaucrats that are doing everything they can do to be promoted, and you got, you know, this, 
this selfish ambition and guys trying to further themselves, sort of like where you work. Everybody's trying to, it's dog eat dog. Everybody's trying to get ahead. Everybody's trying to get the next level. Everybody's trying to do whatever they need. And it's, it's, it's just cutthroat, isn't it? Daniel's the front runner. He, he possesses this extraordinary spirit. Comes from, comes from God. It's the spirit of God on his life. And they don't like it because he, he's so outstanding, which he's been his whole life, he's going to be appointed to run the whole deal. So there's jealousy. D don't be jealous. It's, it's not manly. It's, uh, to be jealous, you know, that's, that's wuss stuff. To be jealous. If someone else achieves a promotion or a victory, you know what? Be happy for them. Congratulate them. Write them a note. Way to go, man. Good job. Way, way to go. Way to go. Don't be petty. Don't be small. Nobody likes that. Be a man. Right? Just be a man. One of the marks of spiritual maturity, I heard David Roper say this when I was in college. He said, you ought to be as excited about somebody else's promotion as you are about yourself. You know, we're excited when something good happens to us, but are you excited with other people? See, that's a mark of maturity. Now, these guys are jealous. They're small time. Now, now we've got to move on. Now you get to verses 4 and 5. The Lion of Judah rules over conspiracy. Oh, by the way, let me say something. If people, if you're ever in a situation people are jealous of you, people are working against you, people are threatened by you. And by the way, this happens in Christian churches, in case you didn't know. If you've been in the church long enough, was it, I forget who it was, Niebuhr, who said if it wasn't for the stench outside the church, you couldn't stand the smell inside the church. <laughs> and if you've been in church long enough, you, you, man, you've smelled some bad stuff. Because you see, you got people, you've got people in churches, you, you know, you've got what you call wheat and tares in churches. Did you know that? Not everybody in an evangelical church, not everybody in this church is a Christian. A lot of them think there are, but a lot of them aren't Christians. They can say it all, they even know verses and they were raised in it and they know all the hymns, you know, without looking. But they don't know Christ. And you run into them, and they, because of who they are and their influence and all this, this happens in any Christian church. They, they work their way in, but they're not even saved. You see? Well, that's going to smell, because they're going to respond to situations just like they do in the corporate world. Then you have other people that are Christians, but they're new, and they're just processing, and they're growing, and they're just developing. Well, they're not real mature, so are they going to have real mature responses? No. Okay, so when they mess up and when they smell... Don't get all hung up because they're screwed up. Am I making any sense? Once again, you get your eyes off people and you put your eyes on Christ. Christ has never disappointed anybody. Has he? No, he hasn't. And by the way, if for some reason they're jealous of you, don't sweat it and don't worry about defending your reputation and, you know, you're falsely accused. Don't worry. Don't, don't worry about it. Let him defend you. You follow him. 
Just keep going about your work. Keep doing your business. Keep following Christ. Sometimes there'll be a conspiracy against you, as there was against Daniel, verses 4 and 5. But the Lion of, Jewel, the Lion of Judah rules over um, conspiracies. Then the commissioner and the satraps begin trying to find the ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. Now watch this. But they could find no ground of accusation. Well, that's interesting. Why is that? Because, catch this, he was clean. He was clean. He didn't screw around. He didn't do Enron accounting. He didn't, uh, he didn't take Johns to Argentina. You know what I'm talking about. Or in all this, don't you ever get tired of these guys espousing family values who are living a lie? You ever get tired of that? Sure you do. Uh, so they're, they're going after this sucker. I, I mean, they are going after Daniel. Why? Because they're threatened by him. Um, they're, they're, they're trying to dig anything they can find on this guy because they're jealous. So in regard to government affairs, they could find no ground of accusation of evidence of corruption, inasmuch as he was found faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. Then these men said, we will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. See, they conspired against him because they were jealous because they hated him. Now here's number four, and I love number four. This is basically... Um, this is basically verses 6, starting with verse 6. I want you to get this one. This is a great one. The Lion of Judah rules over political maneuvering. Watch what these guys do. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king, and they spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps and the high officials and the governors have consulted together the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now I want you to notice that they say in verse 7 that all commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects, the satraps, the high officials, the governor, that's not true. Daniel wasn't in on this. See, these guys are liars. They're deceivers. They're manipulators. They're you know what they are. Goes on today. You know? They write bills and nobody's read them. Just thought I'd throw that one in. <coughs> you got the backroom cronyism, let's pull this off, power play. And so they're going to the king. Say, oh, hey, all of us have gotten together. Now that would include Daniel. Daniel was not in on it. So they deceive this king. Now king, establish the injunction and sign the document. Now let me tell you why it's important to sign the document. The king signed it. If he signed it, it went into law and even the king couldn't change it. This was important. O king, establish the injunction, sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. 
Therefore, Darius, King Darius, signed the document. That is the injunction. Now, here we go. Here we go. This guy was unbelievable. You, you know, uh, hard times separate the men from the boys. Not everyone who names the name of Christ is going to stand. Not everyone who names the name of Christ really loves Christ or follows Christ. There are false teachers in the church. There are false believers in the church. But there are men, there, there are men that we look to and we say to ourselves, I want to be like him. God's always had his men. In every age, in every culture, in every nation, God has his men. They're the real deal. They're the authentic chip off the old block. These are the men that you get to know. These are the men that you study. The Bible says, he who walks with wise men will be wise. Who do you walk with? Bad company corrupts good morals. I'm not saying you don't ever have any interaction with people that don't know the Lord, but I'm saying who are the influencers in your life? Who are the ones that you look to? Who are the ones that you identify with? Who are the ones that you say in your heart of hearts, I would like to be like that man? Daniel's one of these guys. Now, now watch this guy. And, and, and for, uh, you know, 60 years, this guy has been in the inner circle in all the political dealings, but he doesn't waver. He's clean. He's committed. He's solid. His... His walk matches the talk, okay? So what do you got? You got jealousy, you got conspiracy, you got all this stuff going on, this po political chicanery. Verse 10, <clears throat> now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house, now in his roof chamber, he had windows open towards Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. Nothing changed. Oh, although the law had changed. What he was doing was perfectly legal, but now the government changed the law. Uh, basically, the rule of thumb is this. We obey the government. But when the government requires us to disobey God, then we disobey government and take the consequences. This is what Daniel is getting ready to do. He knew it was signed. He knew, he, he knew all about it. And what does he do? He just continues doing what he had always done. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. I want to stop right here. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones the other day, and he said something that I, I thought was just very significant. He said, whenever you read biographies of great Christians, you always see the same things in their lives. Different gifts, different callings, different places of uh, influence, whether they're in business, whether they're in ministry, whether they are, uh, wh whatever their callings are, whatever their giftedness is, whether they're uh, upfront leaders or behind the scene administrators, or whenever you look at mature Christians, and some, of the, some great biographies have been written about great Christian people. Whenever you read their lives, you always see the same thing in their lives, always. Like what? Well, let me give you a few. People that have been used by God, different gifts, different talents, you know, all this, but you'll see the same thing. Number one, they're, they're people of the book. 
They're grounded in the Word of God. They read God's Word, and they meditate on God's Word, and they put God's Word in their heart. I don't care who they are. If it's a significant Christian leader, they're in God's Word. Wilberforce, I, I, it doesn't matter who they are. You're going to see there are people that stand on the Word of God. Not only are they people of the book, but when you're in the Bible, then you become a praying man. There are people who pray. You say, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, praying is just talking to God. Just talk with him. Just talk with him. Just share your heart with him. He knows your heart. So well, I don't know how to do it. Well, there's really no right way to do it. Start with the Lord's Prayer. But, but you, you, you come to him. You talk with him. You let him know your heart. Read some scripture about prayer. But, but you know what? He's your father. So you're in a relationship with him. And, and do you have to pray four, five, six hours a day like praying Hyde of India did? No. No, you don't. He was extraordinary. That was his spiritual calling and gift. Always read about these great intercessors on their knees for five, six, seven hours. Well, you know what? He hasn't called you to that, and he hasn't called me to that. Has he? We have real jobs. Now, God bless them. We're grateful for them. But see, we, we put that up. These extraordinary people with extraordinary gifts, we put that up, and we all read that. Oh, that's how I ought to be. I don't think so. I think you just, you know, you get up, you go to work, and as you're going through the day, you're just, you know, you just talk to the Lord. Not out loud, because there are people who are there. But you know what? You're always on the frequency. You know, one of the interesting things, if you read biographies about Reagan, uh, you, you know what Reagan was doing? A lot of times people thought he was taking naps. You know what he was doing? He was praying. Even his daughter, is it Patty, who was kind of the radical and the crazy one? She wrote a book about her dad recently, and she said, people often misunderstood my dad. He'd be on a plane, and they would think he was not enough. He wasn't not enough. He was praying. He was asking God for wisdom for what he had facing him at the next appointment. That's how he lived his life. And at the time, she mocked it and thought it was foolish. But no, that's my dad. He's always talking with the Lord. Huh. Uh, uh, they're in the book. They're praying. You know what they do? Here's something else. They, they try to avoid sin and temptation. They don't want to go down the wrong path. It's just part of their lives. They're trying to follow the Lord. So they don't do certain things. They're not doing that in order to be justified by God. They're already justified. But they're avoiding certain things in their life. I mean, this, hey, you know what? This is real simple stuff. It, I mean, is, is it not? You say, Steve, what, I mean, you know, I came over here tonight to hear all this stuff. Yeah, because it's real basic. How many years did Nolan Ryan pitch? Like 49 years or something? Do you really think that Nolan Ryan, when he was in his 40s, do you really think he needed to go to spring training? But he did. Shoot, he knew more than the guys that were managing him. But he went to spring training. Why? What do you do at spring training? You work on the fundamentals. You work on the basics. That's what he did. You work on your pickoff move. He'd been doing that since he was six years old. You just keep working the basics. You're in the Word, you pray, you avoid temptation and sin, you see? You ask God to give you opportunities to share the gospel with someone who needs it. Is everyone an evangelist? No. But you know what? God will bring someone across your path, and so you, well, I'm not sure what to do. Well, just tell them what Christ has done for you. No pressure, no big deal. Just tell them, you just be a witness. 
at the appropriate way, the appropriate time. Is this making any sense? See, you see these things in the lives of people that walk with God. Enoch walked with God. Daniel walked with God. You know what Christian life is? It's just walking with God. It's getting up there and just walking with him. You just walk with God. What's he called you to do? You get up in the morning, you got your job, you got kids, you got wife and all this stuff. Okay, what are you doing? You're just walking with God. You're walking with him. You're not walking against him. So you, so you get your Bible and you pray. You see, pretty basic stuff, isn't it? So anyway, you see this consistency in Daniel's life. Knew the injunction had been signed. You know what? He didn't give a rip. He didn't care. I mean, he really didn't care. He's going to do what's right. He's going to follow the Lord because he has a sovereign Lord. And Will there be consequences? Yeah, he knew there were consequences. Oh, by the way, what are the consequences? There are your consequences. Did he waver? Was he shaking in his boots? No. No. So down through 14, you get the story. The king realized he's been set up and that he can't change the law. Then, then you get to verse 16. And now from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, you've got the Lion of Judah ruling over the lions. And here's the story. The king gave orders. Daniel was brought in, cast into the lion's den. The king spoke said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. Stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. The king went off to his palace, spent the night fasting. No entertainment was brought before him and his sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day, went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the den to Daniel, cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God. Notice that, servant of the living God. Has your God, whom you constantly serve... See, there's consistency. There's consistency. Has the God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? And there was a moment where he's waiting. Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also towards you, O king. I have committed no crime. And he was vindicated by the king of kings and the lion of Judah. Hey, Lou, have you already done 15? Are you doing it now? Okay. We know this story. It's a remarkable story. And as we've already mentioned, we're coming up on Thanksgiving. Now, I've been debating this all day if I'm going to do this or not. But I'm going to do it. We've never done anything, to my knowledge, like this before in this group. But here's what I want to do. I have a question for you. As we come to Thanksgiving here a week from tomorrow, my question is to you guys... Uh, you know what we do at Thanksgiving at our house before we eat at the table? We go around the table, and each person takes a minute and gives a specific situation for which they are thankful for to the living God. Now, here's my question. 
Have any of you guys ever been in the lion's den? And have you ever been delivered? I was up early this morning. I was thinking about this, and I got my legal pad. In fact, I got it right here. And I just started writing down how many times I could remember. Just off the top of my head, God has delivered me from the lions. And just off the top of my head, I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. And I stopped there. And, I, and then as I went through the day, I thought of maybe ten more Without much thought, I could come up with 25 deliverances from the lion's den over the last 25 years. Usually about one a year. They're all different. But you see, what, what I'm saying to you is, and to me this is the Christian life, you walk into crisis, God leads you into crisis, and for every guy in here, it's different. But God puts you into crisis, and if God doesn't come through for you, it's over. If God doesn't come through for you, you're finished. It might be financially, it might be your career, it might be your family, it might be your marriage, it might be, I don't know what it is, but if God doesn't come through, and if God doesn't make a way, you're screwed. I think it's screwizo in the New Testament. I, I can't remember in the Greek how it, but, but can I use that terminology? You're done, you're toast, you're over. With this, How many of you guys are facing something and you haven't been delivered yet? But there's something on your plate. Okay, now, if you're, we're not going to do anything weird here. But if that's you, you know what, I, let's, all, let's all stand right now. And if you're one of those guys, would you just raise your hand that you're in a deal right now and you haven't been quite delivered? Would some guys that are close by, just, just uh, put your hands on that guy and then let's pray specifically. Because we've heard some great stories tonight and there's a whole bunch more of how God has come. But you know what? we got guys that need to see the Lord come through in a significant way. So let's bow and let's go before our Father. Father, we are grateful for all the times in our lives you have come through and delivered us. We thank you that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We thank you for this. We rejoice with what we've just heard about how even in spite of fraud and manipulation, you, you have honored this couple, and we give you glory and honor for that. We thank you for Ron and his family, all they went through, yet you honored them, and you have delivered them. Uh, Lord, things don't always go the way we think they're going to go. Sometimes things take much longer than we think they're going to take. But for the guys that uh, have lifted their hand, that they're in a situation uh, where they're just feeling the crunch and where they're threatened, whatever it might be, we pray, Lord, that they would sense your presence, that they would trust in your word, and at the right time, you would come through for them. And maybe if we do this again in a year, they'll be the ones standing up saying, let me tell you what God did for me. We have all seen you come through. Even the guys that have lifted their hands in the past, they've seen you come through. They've seen you deliver them. And, and Lord, you're not going to stop now. You are our deliverer. You are our sovereign keeper.
So as we launch into these holidays, as we launch into these holy days, well, we remember a day of thanksgiving and we remember the birth of Jesus Christ who is the only way to salvation. We thank you that we know you. Thank you that you're actively at work in our lives. And every day, give us the assurance that you're with us as we walk with you. We commit ourselves to you. In the name that's above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen.